Welcome to Night School, taking a stab at the Middle Ages, a podcast devoted to medieval history and culture, and the occasional bad pun. I'm Becca, bringing you everything related to medieval religion and church history. And I'm Claire, talking about medieval literature and history. Welcome back, everyone. Today we are joined by Dr. Emily Steiner to discuss the late 14th century allegorical narrative poem, Pierce Plowman. Dr. Steiner is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research interests extend to natural history and the history of encyclopedism, law and literature, drama and ritual performance, and Jewish-Christian relations in the Middle Ages. Her teaching interests include Old English literature, Chaucer, Arthurian literature, and poetry of all periods. She is the author of three books, Documentary Culture and the Making of Medieval English Literature, Reading Pierce Plowman, and John Trevisa's Information Age, Knowledge and the Pursuit of Literature, circa 1400. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Steiner. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start off with a very broad, basic question to engage our listeners. Um, So we were just kind of wondering what distinguishes Piers Plowman from other 14th century or near contemporary alliterative poems? And this is also kind of a broad question, but what are some of the genres that the poem utilizes? Okay, so, well, you know that Piers Plowman is an incredibly complex, very long poem. one of the things that distinguishes it from other alliterative poems that are maybe more familiar to people like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or the Pearl Poet or the alliterative Mort Arthur, one of the things that really distinguishes it, first of all, besides the fact that it's super long, um, is that it is really pretty much not invested in narrative. So all these other poems that we're talking about even very religious poems like the ones that the Pearl Poet wrote, um, do have like a narrative arc, even if it's just a scriptural narrative like Jonah. And this, so you kind of associate alliterative poetry with um, creating a kind of rhythmical narrative of some kind, maybe in an Arthurian one. And Pierce Plowman is really different and feels really avant-garde to us because it completely subsumes Um, subordinates uh, narrative to process. So what you're supposed to, I think, experience in Pierce Plowman is like a process of poetry and thought rather than a page-turning narrative. Um, I just say one other thing about what makes it different. One of the other things that makes it really different um, is that it has a lot of Latin in it. And sometimes the alliterative poetry is being spun out of Latin quotations from the Bible. And sometimes the alliterative English poetry is making the poet think of Latin verses. But this kind of kind of basic Latin literacy and like really highly wrought English literative poetry are like very intertwined um, in this poem. About the second question about genre. Well, um, There's a lot of different genres in this poem, but they're kind of genres in retrospect. So like we think we know what alliterative poetry is because we know about Pierce Plowman and the way it departs from that tradition um, or maybe inspired that tradition. Um, But also we, we read this poem and we're like, oh yeah, 
like that's a moment of satire like um or that's a sermon or that's dream vision um and those are all there in the poem like one of the one of the dream visions that it imitates um all the time is a, a very famous in the day dream vision by Guillaume de Guilville called The Pilgrimage of the Life of Man. It also definitely sounds like something like satire when it's making fun of all the, the corruptions of the different social orders. But it also has other things in it that we don't recognize as being genres um, and maybe question what we think of as genre. Like I think pilgrimage is a genre that it's working with, right? And we're like, no, pilgrimage is like a cultural form. Like you go on a pilgrimage and you visit like a saint shrine. But I think pilgrimage is an actual genre in the poem. And it alludes to that because every book is called a passus or a step that you would take um, in a pilgrimage. Another genre that we don't think of as being a genre is the, the tree of vice and virtues. So this is a very pictorial genre, but um, where you have like humility is like in a pot and out of humility, you know, is growing all of these different virtuous fruit, like patience or um, love. And these are really popular in Langland's period, these like trees of vice and virtues. And you see that, for example, um, in the tree of charity um, in in the BTEX um, in uh, Passus 18. But we don't think of that as a genre, but like it is a kind of genre in the poem. And because you just mentioned the BTEX, um, I guess we could talk a little bit also about the different versions of the poem. Um, so you say in your book, Reading Pierce Plowman, that from the 1380s to around 1400, the text is more a work in progress. So could you tell us a little bit about the different versions of the poems, as well as, you know, maybe how they connect or are different from each other? Uh, sure. So this is a very controversial topic in Pierce Plowman studies, which is a very controversial field of study. Um, so... I, the way that most people think about it is that A is an early and shorter version that's sort of incomplete. B is the sort of massive revision and addition to A. And then C is kind of like this more sober-minded and maybe like slightly more resolving and less imaginative version of B. And then there's this kind of like outlier Z. Um, but people have really different opinions about this. So we tend to think that like when people write poetry, they start with the shortest and then they get to the longest version. Um, but it's not necessarily true. Like one could be like a one-off version for like a specialized audience that's shorter. So that's one theory about um, the, this poetic tradition. Um, another theory is that, um, a, an, an important theory that Lawrence Warner has put forward is that even though probably C came after B and it has two seems to have like some extra passes and some extra material. It seems as if the B that we actually have that survives was revised with a C manuscript. So in other words, like when you're working in a manuscript culture rather than in a publishing culture, it's very hard to see whether there's actually three discrete versions of a poem because like a scribe could be like, oh, I have this B, but 
I know there's a C out there and there's more there. So let me get a copy of that and I'll add that in. Um, so you don't have like these autonomous versions, which is kind of like an interesting problem. So it's, I think it's, it's, it is a work in progress, both for the poet, but also for us as readers. Like we're never quite sure like what a discrete version is. And, you know, that's kind of one of the challenges of poem. I'll just say one other thing is that people who study this poem for whom there's no exit strategy um, tend to like move. Like they're like, well, I really loved B when I was like in my 20s. But then when I got to my 40s, I became like a C person. <laughs> it's like, so it's kind of like a, work, a, a life work for, for Pierce Plum and readers as well as for the poet. So I know you already mentioned about pilgrimage, kind of seeing that as a particular genre. And so I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit more. So in the prologue and the first few passes, Will, the dreamer, sees a fair field of folk and is set up by various guide figures to embark on a pilgrimage. So could you describe the allegorical landscape being set up for Will here? And how does this fair field of folk kind of represent the tripartite system or depart from it in um, medieval England? Okay, so one of the spectacular things that like capture people's attention about the poem and all of its versions is that you start off with this description of everybody. And there's a lot of things, uh, and, and all of these people are supposed to be sort of working on, a, on an allegorical field. But we very quickly hear that there's merchants and there's loyal, lo there are lawyers and there's hermits and there's anchoresses and um, women and men. And there's all these different kinds of people and they're quite loud and um, sort of jostling for your attention. Um, and he uses this um, rhetorical technique of saying some did this, some did that, some were this, some were that. So you feel like these allegorical lines building a kind of community that's sort of a, a kind of fantasy community of good and bad people, rich and poor. Um, and so that's, that's a really cool thing about the opening of the poem. And people wonder if Chaucer kind of looked toward to that and said, okay, I'm gonna do my version of this. Um, and create what I think is kind of a, a sort of diverse community of people. And um, so one way of thinking about the second part of your question about, you know, what does this tell us about like social estates? Um, I, it's kind of traditional to think about medieval social estates as being divided into those who work, those who fight, and those who pray. And um, Langland does allude to those kinds of um, triads. Uh, he's very interested in that kind of tri triadic thinking where you can divide things into three parts. Like he has another w way in which he thinks socially about those who do well, do better, and do best. I think what's really important about his social vision is that he's also really interested in putting you in the, in the position that you're uncomfortable with. So although he is wedded to this idea that people are born into different estates, like he'll put you in a position as a reader where you're meant to feel like a churl, like you're meant to feel like, what if, am I, so the, the larger question of the poem is, you know, am I gonna be saved and how am I gonna be saved? 
And so he's often, even though he says, you know, they're, they're clergy and there's knighthood and there's, there's the people who are working the commons, he also does all these tricky metaphors to make you feel like, well, do I need to feel like a peasant in order to be saved? Like, I try to run away from, from my manor and the Lord apprehends me and throws me into prison until I confess my sins and then he takes me back. And there's like a lot of metaphors that are forcing you into other social positions that are like a little bit uncomfortable. So that's kind of a cool thing that you don't expect. I think um, another interesting aspect of the text is kind of its political critiques. And that was something we wanted to ask you about as well. Um, so for example, the rats or cat dream has been interpreted by some as kind of an allusion to the good parliament of 1376. So we were wondering, could you tell us more about how the contemporary political climate might have influenced the author's text and also um, secondarily, what is the social imperative embodied by Pierce? Okay, well that's an interesting question. Um, so on one hand, there are references, some of them mysterious and some of them pretty overt to events that are happening at this particular time that allow us to sort of date the poem and think about how it responds to contemporary events. So you mentioned um, the good parliament of uh, 1376. And I think that um, one of the contemporary political movements that are going on that he seems to refer to um, in very specific ways um, in the prologue um, and passes one um, is the growth of the parliamentary commons. So in this period, um, the commons um, who are, as opposed to the lords in parliament who are called individually um, and, and re um, represent themselves. Um, and that's still true. The commons are sort of representing a shire or an area, and they're usually not as, although they might have in this period, um, have a lot of um, land and money and prestige. They're not titled in the same way that the House of Lords are. They're representing other people. Um, and in this period, Langland is really interested in the way that people can be represented by other people um, where like a kind of community of the whole could be represented by like a particular and brave speaker. Um, I wouldn't say that like he's interested in like democracy or republic or anything like that, but he is really interested in how the community of the whole can be represented by a, a smaller group of people or even one person who dares to speak out and how that would work. I think that there's a lot of different answers to that question. I think one of the things that the poet is looking for is a social imperative. So I think that the imperative part of that is also really important. So the, the larger question of the poem is how can we kind of all get saved? Like how can we all make it? And with the feeling that if we don't do something together now, that's the imperative part, um, none of us are going to make it. Like, we're going to sort of spiral into some kind of apocalypse now. And so that, and this is a very, very optimistic view, 
that there's something that we could all do now with respect to the way that we treat each other that will land all of us on the other side. And so what's social about that is the idea that you could, he uses the expression, comfort all creatures, that there's a certain way in which you could behave towards other people, whether you're poor and you're accepting of your poverty um, or you're rich and you're giving to the poor um, or you're a merchant or you're a thief, that there's some way in which everybody has the potential to get to that other side if they can just realign their perspectives towards each other now. And that's actually more important to the poet than referring to particular events. So we tend to think like things are politically important because they refer to topical things like the statute of vagrancy or um, something that seems to be a conservative or a, a more liberal viewpoint. I don't think he understands social life and politics in the same way. I think he's thinking, how can we all like realign so that we're all going to be saved on the other side? Like that's what he's thinking about. And that's, that's like a, a really pressing position for him. So kind of just continuing along these lines, this is once again a broad question, so feel free to just take it wherever you feel like going. Um, but how does the text critique corruption in the institutional medieval church in England and the competence of its clergy? Well, on one hand, the, the poem can be very savage in its critique of contemporary clergy. Um, people who are just interested, uh, clergymen who are interested in accumulating benefices, so having different lucrative positions at different churches that they then like rent out or farm out to other people. Um, he's very critical of the friars. Um, and this is most spectacular in the final scene where he has a character called, a friar called Sir Petrons Domus, the person who invades your home. Um, he's very concerned about these itinerant friars who he feels like beg, but they don't really need the money and they corrupt people's homes by going in and begging or influencing people who are wealthy to do the wrong thing. Um, so he has a lot of different complaints about the institutional clergy. At the same time, he is so um, mesmerized by the figure by the idea of like a rogue clergy, clergyman. So um, he talks about people who are minstrels, who just want to flatter, flatter lords with their jokes and their um, silly games and their secular music. But he's so into this idea of God's friars, which for him is like a certain kind of itinerant religious person, like who's kind of on the road and like wearing rags and like sings about God and everyone thinks they're crazy. Um, he's also um, really interested in the idea of um, a lunatic lawler. So this is from the C text, but um, somebody who is a kind of religiously on the fringe 
um, who sort of takes to the road, who begs for money, and is weirdly wearing their summer garments in winter, like they're like dressed in rags. And he's so I, I think on one hand, he's very critical of the institutional clergy, of which he's probably one, but he also sees them as a source for thinking about what it would mean like to like spiritually go rogue. So I guess continuing on with the theme of the medieval Christian church, you do mention in your writings that there are various incorporations of Boethius's sixth century treatise, Constellation of Philosophy, um, in Pierce Plowman. So could you tell us a little bit about how the poet Christianizes this dialogue and how these influences bleed into the figures like the Holy Church and Lady Me? Okay, so... Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is kind of one of the most important philosophical texts for the Christian Middle Ages. And one of the reasons is it's, it's kind of already primed to be a Christian text because it's about somebody who's lost everything and has to come to the position that that's okay. So because it doesn't go so far as to imagine what life is going to be like after death or like a, a Christian idea of a spiritual word. But it has like a Christian stoic mentality that, you know, in this, you can't trust anything in this life, that everything is in control of fortune, that you want to go higher and not, you know, be kind of a slave to this worldly desires. Um, so, and I don't know if everyone agrees that um, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is a source for the episode with Holy Church in which she tries to realign the dreamer's thinking about worldly riches. I, I feel like it is. I mean, one of the things that's important about uh, both her and the character of Lady Mead, who's a very corrupt interlocutor, uh, who does want you to pay attention to worldly goods and value them, um, is that there are two female interlocutors and two female interlocutors that seem to be modeled by lady philosophy and fortune who are almost always depicted as women. Um, so I think that these female, powerful female interlocutors who are working on either side of like value worldly things, reject worldly things, I think is a, is a huge influence on Pierce Plowman. I also think they, um, they make it possible for him to think about reforming yourself as a dialogue. So um, it's actually conversing with like different figures, particularly allegorical figures who might even be like inside of yourself. They might be your reason and your conscience um, is actually sort of the way forward, this interlocution or dialogue. So another perhaps very memorable moment from the text is when the seven deadly sins take part in a series of public confessions. And you know that this moment is particularly notable for its theatricality. So what does the personification of sin and confession tell us about Langland's exploration of penance as a ritual of community, as you say in your book? And how do the sins challenge the efficacy of sacrament? Okay, so one of the one of the great episodes that's very memorable about Pierce Plowman is the confession of the seven deadly sins. And they come and tell us everything that they've done wrong. And they actually repent, which is a which is a strange part of it. And I think one of the fascinating things about it is that, of course, like if the sin actually repented, then there wouldn't be any more sin. Um, on the other hand, 
because these sins are embodied in these characters, they remind us, um, they're meant to remind us that there's not really anybody in the world that's in a body that can actually stop sinning. So like the sins, the sins confess and you know they're going to go on to sin some more because they're sins. But when people confess, they're also likely to go on and sin some more too. So like that embodiment of the sin sort of refers to the cyclical process that people are always part of. And I don't think that takes away from the sacrament of penance. I think it just sort of shows how it works, that it's always, you're always in this cycle. And in that way, it kind of refers to the poem as a whole, because it's not the kind of poem that you can read once and then you're done and then you've understood it and then you can move on. Like you have to read that thing over and over again to try to figure out like how it's going to get you anywhere. Um, and so I think, I, I think those episodes are trying to sort of point to like what that, what the penitential process of like reading and being is like. We also see in different parts of the text, sometimes non-Christian religions are brought up. So, for example, um, there's animus stories is included about the Prophet Muhammad, um, and it kind of seems to adhere to this common medieval theme of portraying Muhammad as kind of a trickster as part of its like anti-heretical polemic. So could you kind of share a little bit more about this and maybe is this linked to the text critique of the church and if so, how? So that's something that I, I keep grappling with over and over again is the depiction of Jews and Muslims in this poem. And, and there are some really interesting parts um, that intersect with some of the crusader romances that are popular in this period that I think you probably discussed with Professor Lamuto. Um, I think that um, with, with Jewish characters, there's parts, there's, there's several points in which he oddly says that he admires the way that Jewish people support each other, which is sort of a funny thing to say, because you assume that he just doesn't know any Jewish people, so um, that he's really far removed from any Jewish communities. So it's an interesting comment to make, because it seems like it's based on some kind of observation. On the other hand, he in the passage that you're talking about in uh, B15, he's very much like anticipates and would like to promote um, a kind of uh, missionary activity in which um, English Christian priests could go forward and convert the infidel Jews, Muslims, which doesn't seem like, to me, like a real possibility in this period. In terms of Islam and Muhammad, uh, Langland's contemporaries are still really wedded in this weird way to this crusading ideal, even though it's really hasn't been a live possibility for at least 50 years, but they're like holding on to this. They don't really know that. I mean, we know that now, but they don't really know that there's not gonna be another crusade. They're they are fantasizing about other crusades that might happen in the future. And Langland is sort of part of that, that fantasy in which he's like weirdly reprimanding um, 14th century English clergy for not being like the more successful missionaries of yesteryear who were able to actually go out and 
um, convert the infidel Muslim Jews pagans, even though it seems like a really remote possibility to him. And uh, yes, I think one of the things that I was trying to say in the book, but I've been also in other essays trying to work through is that this is like a lens for him to think about what's really wrong with the Christian clergy of his own day. And what if it's that you just can no longer be a really effective uh, clergyman in England in this present time? Like what if their time has already passed? Like he has like a space time continuum problem. Like he just like wants to go back like 200 years or 300 years and, you know, be able to do this all over again. But there's something wrong with like living in his own day that, um, priests in his day can't imitate the what he feels are the heroics of missionary activity of the past. So we always like to end on a fun question. I guess you could call this a fun question. We think it's fun. Um, but we were just curious what your favorite book is that you've read in recent months. Or it doesn't have to be a book, just something you've, you know, read well, that, I, I, you can imagine this is a, this is like a weird COVID question. Like usually I have a book that I'm like recommending right away. Um, so I guess one of the things that I've discovered is not a book, but a journal. So I, because my attention span is so super bad these days, like I've been sort of piecing together a bunch of different journals. So I've always read The New Yorker since I was like a kid. So I've been, I get The New Yorker, I read it cover to cover. And then I added on The Economist um, about two years ago because I like the way, I like the style of that. And I, I, I like the way that because it's a British publication, I'm more likely to get out of my American worldview and get like a view of the whole world. So I, you know, I'm learning about all these different countries and cultures that I really would not know anything about and my Google search would never take me to. So I love The Economist for that reason. I feel like I finally, after reading it for two years, like understand like what's going on in the Philippines. Um, and then, in COVID time, I was watching so much terrible TV. I don't even really like TV like that much, but like I was watching so much bad stuff that I was like, I need like an antidote to that. So I decided to sign up for the Paris Review, which is like an old literary journal. And it's so amazing. And I feel like it was this third part that I needed. So like I read the three of those together and then I feel like, I feel like like a bona fide you know, literary scholar when <laughs> I read the three of them together. So well-rounded and what yeah. you're <laughs> But it's like my substitute for like not being able to get through a long novel. That's very fair. Okay, well, I think that's all the time we have for. Thank you so much, Dr. Steiner, for coming on to talk to us about the wonderful Pierce Plowman. We had a lot of fun. For our listeners, just stay tuned for future episodes. Mm -hmm.